Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. I'm your host, Chance, and on this beautiful day in June, in our glorious creation, what could be better than scratching the itch for a deep Tolkien talk? With today's guest, Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, aka Fencing Bear. In the words of our illustrious friend Gabriel, the slick dissident, philology is lockpicking. And through language, the mystery of history reveals itself in ways that human memory has long since forgotten. Perhaps there have been none quite so wise in the spirit of Logos in our current age since the Renaissance days when Petrarch lamented the loss of Alexandria's grand library as the great J.R.R. Tolkien, who so deftly illuminated the nature of our realm through the awesomest of allegories, the Lord of the Rings, and the vast legendarium it engendered. Today with our illustrious illustrious guest, Professor Rachel Fulton-Brown, we will explore the unexplorable reaches of ancient history that Tolkien's works have purveyed to us while considering the larger themes of creation and subcreation, the spiritual necessity of dissonance, Tolkien's cosmogony and its relation to the esoteric mystery doctrines, the geography of Middle-earth, and the possibility of alternate forms of humanoid beings that may have once or yet still exist upon our realm. You can find Professor Brown at her blog, fencingbearatprayer.blogspot.com, also at the dragoncommonroom.com, no the, sorry, dragoncommonroom.com, and on unauthorized.tv, where she has a vast series called The Forge of Tolkien, which I'm sure we will talk about some of the things that are in that today. I'm super excited to get into this one. Been way too long since I did a podcast about my all-time favorite author. So thanks for being here, Rachel, and welcome to the Interverse. Um, thank you for having me, Chance. It's, it's going to be fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the, the funnest of all the fun to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> fun, fun seems a very pale word to use to talk about Tolkien, but I, I, you know, I'm sure you'd approve. It's, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Hobbity. It's going to be hobbity. <laughs> so, Rachel, maybe since I really just grabbed you for this interview on gut instinct, that little small still voice in my in my head was like, this is the person, you know, I stumbled across your work on unauthorized while at that time wanting to have a Tolkien chat. So 
maybe you can introduce me and the audience a little more to you, what you've been doing for the last many years, how Tolkien plays into that and your personal hero's journey. It's been quite a journey. So um, I'm a medieval historian and I teach history of Christianity, European civilization, liturgy, exegesis, devotion, symbolism um, at the University of Chicago. Um, I've also been um, teaching for the last 20 some years a course on Tolkien, which I call Tolkien Medieval and Modern, uh, very specifically on sort of themes of subcreation and fairy and history you know, sort of where Tolkien gets his stories, how how to craft our own within his legendarium. And that series, or the, the, the series of videos on unauthorized Forge of Tolkien draws off of that class that I've taught at the University of Chicago, because much, much deeper, because at Chicago, I get 10 weeks or nine weeks. And, you know, it's 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 a it's a limited series, whereas my unauthorized videos are going much, much deeper into what I've I've been working with on that course. So we can go any direction, right? We can go why I took this spiritual journey, why I, what I do with my class, what I do in those videos. I'm, I'm happy to talk about Tolkien. Yeah, I think I just want to jump right into the deep. With Tolkien, it is such a powerful allegory that I'm surprised that there isn't a name for like a Tolkien-based religion, the way people self-identify as Jedi. <laughs> you know what it, I mean? It's called Christianity. <laughs> I mean, that's it's, everybody knows that. And this this is one of the challenges in teaching the course. And I, you know, now that I've done the videos and I'm starting to get to talk to people outside of, of the university, that people come to Tolkien wanting to be inside that story. And one of the things I do in the course is sort of say, well, you know, what he thought he was doing was showing you the way in which, as he says in Mythopoeia, you know, we make still in the, by the law in which we're made. But for him, that was within the understanding of ourselves as creatures of God, right? So you said subcreation at the beginning, that we are creatures made to be artists, made to subcreate within that world. But for him, it was always as a, as a Catholic. And he, there's a famous letter where he's writing to Father Robert Murray, who asks him various questions about, you know, it's like, well, what kind of story is this? And he said, well, it was, it's fundamentally Catholic, unconsciously at first, consciously so in the revision. Um, and I think I mean, one of the wonderful things about thinking about Tolkien is understanding what that means. I mean, people, unfortunately, now tend to think of Christianity as this checklist of doctrines, right? And what Tolkien did was realize that it's it's a longing for being in that story. So when you say there is there a religion, well, yes, there is. Um, but we in the modern world have lost sight of what that story actually is. And that's what Tolkien was was working within. It's what he tried to convince Lewis of in that poem, Mythopoeia, and why Lewis becomes Christian. Right. So if you say, why isn't there a religion? Well, there is, but we've lost we've lost sight of it. It's 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 been obscured to us by centuries of well, I would say scholastic theology, but then I'll get into more, even more trouble. So we can, we can go there if you want. Uh, but it is, it is in fact Christian, but explaining why that's the case is a challenge. Yeah, that I totally get it. I mean, even putting a certain label like that on an individual like Tolkien, we all have our personal interpretation of what it means to be Christian or what it means to be Catholic. I get the sense from his work that it's Catholic in the sense of universal, that what the Catholic faith was maybe initially meant to be and for a lot of people still is, would be the 
like the extension of the first wisdom that rational beings would have been endowed with upon their creation that has been diluted and, you know, <laughs> lost in many ways as incorrect ideas have been given, you know, dissonance and re- have risen up in uh, prominence. So, you know, for, for you or for what you understand of Tolkien, do you think that this Catholic label maybe is a bit different or more expansive or ancient than Christianity as it's known by the common folk? Uh, well, so I'm going to push back and say, no, he's Roman Catholic. And he meant that. Um, but I think what what you've described about how he understood what Catholicism is, is accurate. It's like that, that he what he's he's trying to do. Um, see, this this is going to be my challenge to persuade you of that. Right. Because it's like he it, in his letters and if you read his letters when he's writing to his sons, therefore, when he's writing most as himself and least to the public, um, you know, most privately, what he says to them over and over and over again is the great drama of everything. You know, it's like the greatest romance is the mass. Um, he, you know, he, when he was growing up, his mother converted from Anglicanism to Catholicism and was abandoned by her family. I mean, she's, she's already widowed because their father died um, when uh, she was with the, the the boys in Africa. He, her their father went back to England and died and they never saw him again. So she brought, um, Hillary and Tolk and Ronald back to England and their little boys, right? Their little, their children. And she, as a widow, is taking care of them and converts to Catholicism and her entire family abandons her. So <laughs> not only is she a widow, but she has no support of her own, her own, you know, community because they're all Anglican. And then she dies and the boys are left orphaned. And she gives, she, she made um, father um, Morgan, Frank Morgan, um, their guardian, um, so, you know, he's a Catholic priest as a guardian. And then when he falls in love with Edith, who becomes his wife, first Father Morgan forbids them to see each other because they're underage at the time. And so he obeys his 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 guardian and doesn't talk to her for several years. When he ch- becomes of age, you know, sits up in bed on the midnight of January 3rd and writes to her and says, we should be married. She is already engaged to somebody else. He um, goes and talks to her where she's living then and says, no, we really should be married, but you have to become Catholic first. He really meant it. <laughs> and and likewise, you know, when he's he's trying to convince Lewis of the truth of the mythologies, he's doing it with Hugo Dyson on this famous walk on Addison's walk behind Magdalen College. And, and Lewis is in this mode of, you know, mythology is lies. It's all, you know, maybe there's, truths in it, but it's breathed through silver. It's all, you know, uh, you know, theologically um, irrelevant, whether or not the truths are there. And Tolkien is like, no, that they, it's true. Right. So I think if, if we're going to talk about what Tolkien's actual convictions were, you have to have some sense of what he get, what he risked and what he sacrificed to be Catholic. It wasn't nothing. Yeah, this uh, one of the age old questions is what is and isn't true or historical about the mythology and you can come at it from one of two angles me personally i am very interested in the study of mythology and etymology and the keys to the mysteries that are there for those who have eyes to see in pretty much every branch of human so-called spirituality throughout history And the question is, like, are those keys there because we're looking at a system, a craft that had a common origin and then spread out? 
Or are those keys there of consistency because we're talking about true events? And <laughs> those are questions that are very hard to, you know, that's a personal conviction. You kind of have to, uh, I don't know how you can prove it one way or the other. And to me, it's not something worth being divided over, but perhaps the the value in comparative studies would be to see that the truth is there for all people to see at any time in any place. And that's like the nature of the realm and the nature of truth is that it can't be concealed. Yep, that's all true. <laughs> and 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 no, the th- but the thing is, what's what's interesting is it's like, and you you're you're I, I appreciated that you took a risk having me on and talking to you. So I'm just going to be honest with you about it. it's like if we if we say yes, that's what Christianity teaches, then everybody goes, oh no, it's not true. I I feel threatened. If 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 I just say yes, what you just said is absolutely true, and it is in fact what Christianity teaches. It's interesting that we have difficulty hearing it, and um, what what Lewis told what sorry what Tolkien tells Lewis in Mythopoeia this this I'm sure you know you know the poem the the poem is that something I need to introduce? I actually have not read that one. Okay, so it's 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 published it's it published in Tree and Leaf in the in the little volume that includes on fairy stories and Leaf by Niggle. Um, and it's it's this wonderful iambic pentameter um, verse that Tolkien wrote in the in the early 30s, inspired by Lewis's making the kinds of arguments you are right. Lewis has been studying mythology. They've been uh, meeting as coal biters. The, the they're reading the Icelandic sagas and Lewis, you know, has been, you know, tr- reading mythologies and, and such for decades and they're both professors at or in some kind of teaching position at, at 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 Oxford at the time. And Lewis doesn't want to say it's it the 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 Christian it's Christian, right? He just wants to say it it's got to be some truth in there. And Lewis uh, Tolkien is trying to convince him and it's interesting he does it in poetry instead of any other way. He doesn't do it in argument, right? He's not going to sit down and say, well here's the Trinity, which <laughs> as you found me on the unauthorized, you know that that's a debate in in, the, in that field, right? You know, we have to believe this, that, and the other or else you're damned. And, and Tolkien never does that, right? He he has very little discussion of the Trinity. I don't know that he does it ever, right? What he cared about was saying these these things that you are sensing the patterns what what you just chance just said you put it as an either or are they patterns out there or is it just true well they are right it's patterns and truth um what tolkien wanted to say is this is in fact the revelation that we have um you know through as i say the tradition through christ of ourselves as creatures made to be um images of that that creator right so what you just said is absolutely accurate it's 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 these patterns that we see ourselves participating in it's the truth that's been revealed to us it's very interesting to me that because of the way people badly teach i think that's why i say my particular beef is with the scholastics who want everything to be well, it, it's logically provable, but in the, and I can understand that too. But they they turn it into this thing that you're going to beat people over the head with if they don't believe it. And I obviously don't believe that's a very good method of coming to that understanding. I, I think what you're describing in your quest is actually appropriate. Very cool. I so I, I can I'm get very... the poem out if you want me to read it. <laughs> oh, is it pretty brief? <laughs> Uh, no, it's it's long, but it's it's I can I can give you a taste of it. Let me pull. I've got stacks of books around me, so I live in books, <laughs> right? And I'm also told you never read on the internet. Too bad I do. Um, <laughs> I do sometimes. It's yeah. all right. So this is the the beginning. of The poem is. Um, 
he's, he's arguing with Lewis about, you know, like how you label what language means. I think you'd like, I think you'd like this. Um, and saying, you know, that in fact, it's only through language that we come to reality. Um, but in fact, reality is itself this, this kind of patterned beauty. And, and yet it's not real until we can name it, until we can put it into stories. Um, and he said, he says things like this, unless we can see them with our minds, with our human minds, and they're just like balls of, you know, at atomic energy or something like that. Um, but whereas if we as storytellers start naming them as celestial beings and so forth, it becomes more real in, in an interesting way. So he says things like he sees no stars who does not see them first of living silver made that sudden burst to flame like flowers beneath an ancient song whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void unless a jeweled tent myth woven and elf patterned and no earth unless the mother's womb, which whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise and still recalls him. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet he is not dethroned and keeps the ragship of lordship once he owned. His world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light, through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods in their houses out of dark and light, and sow the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. So that's his 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 argument about the kinds of stories that Lewis is saying they're they're just fictions and lies. And he says, no, they are the truth right? um, because we are creatures of of the creator and we're making still by the law in which we made. We make understanding in stories because we are creatures of that creator. So when you earlier just now said, you know, do we see that are we part of this pattern? Well, yes. Is it true? Well, yes. Right. But the the sort of revelation of of what that truth is, is what Tolkien is saying we get to through this storytelling. I totally sense? get it. Yeah, okay. that, that makes a lot of sense because, <laughs> I mean, just think about the idea of a pattern that we can see this in nature all over the place in the cyclical seasons, in the nine months of gestation, in anything that nature builds. There is an order of operations. It's math. It's ma'at. You know, that's how divine harmony and order is achieved is through things occurring according to a pattern, a framework that is pre-existing in some way. And then you have the word for father, potter, that's pattern. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of other things that you can pull out of that word. But the concept of logos or the word, as it's been attributed to many savior and solar deities apart in other places and other times uh, universally could be in itself a reflection of the fact that it's the mediator through which we can comprehend the father, the pattern that uh, we cannot reach it without this capacity of the language, the label, the, the creative spoken word, which is to me pretty fascinating conceptually since we have thought, you know, th thought being an example here, we have thought that only really arises through language, through this operating system, if you want to call it such. Uh, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about 
the the pattern as Tolkien allegorizes in his cosmogony. I'm loving the music of the Einar, uh, mm. as it's called, the chief of the gods or the first cause, Iluvatar or Elu, I think it's called, right? Or Eru, Eru, the one. Yeah. There was yeah. Eru, the one. Right, and Eru <laughs> is, even calling it Eru is uh, very reminiscent of, say, like the ancient Grecian system that put the firstborn of the first cause as Eros, right? Which I comprehend as being, you know, as a part of this pattern, as as a symbolic representation of the the savior or mediating force that part of like what saves humanity is Eros in the sense that without the masculine and feminine generative principles being brought together through the spark of attraction of those two poles being separate, we would have no, you know, progeny. We'd have no future that that Eros principle in its simplest form is often allegorized with the lingam and yoni. And then the boat that they create when put together, the whole being the yoni and the mast being the lingam and the savior of man or the the incarnation of the first cause being the one that rides on the boat and restarts humanity after a cycle ends and everything is reset, so to speak. So <laughs> I'm sure there may be more than what uh, the cosmogony of Tolkien that you want to respond to in that, but I'm. Oh yeah. Really <laughs> um, but so what the, the way you're, what, the way you're talking, I would be, you know, it's like, I, I live off reading lists, right. And those of the, your listeners, if they want to see some of mine, so they know where I'm coming from, I have on dragon common room. There's a whole page called study guides where I, I put a lot of my bibliographies and stuff. So you can check out, you can check me out and figure out where, why I say what I do. Um, but th the way, the way you're describing the, the sort of reality of these patterns in this structure, one that from the 19th century, there was an effort to figure out, you know, like, is there a truth in all of these stories? And I mean, the, the people, the person that people usually reference is Campbell. Um, who Joseph Campbell, right? And he's he's going through and he's looking at all of these stories and saying, look, they're they're they have the same structures, they have the same, um, you know, just the the, hero, the hero's journey thing things. What the, the problem? The, and then then I then I come in and I'm the historian, which was what Tolkien was also, right? Philology is language history and and sort of trying to find in the traces of the words that we have the stories that used to carry them. Right. So as a historian, that's what I'm I'm also doing and understanding that this desire to see the the single truth in all of these mythologies. I'm, I'm sorry, but it is a Christian desire. <laughs> it's the the way that the the the. Um, convert the, the efforts of the, the missionaries throughout the Middle Ages worked was we have the truth, right? We know that we have the truth. It's revealed through Christ. He's the light. He's the logos. He's the, as you're very accurately describing, he's the way to the father, all of that. Absolutely true. How do we as Christians say in the seventh century, communicate this reality to people who have never heard of it? Oh, well, we'll show them that in fact, those stories that they already have contain this same truth. Um, you know, for example, um, one of the texts that I've written about um, fairly extensively is the, is the, called the Heliand. It's an old Saxon gospel harmony um, retelling of the gospel story, the Christ story in old German, right? The old Saxon. And the, the author there, because he's writing for Saxons in like the, the seventh, eighth, um, I think it's eighth, eighth, 
we don't really have dates on a lot of these things, right? We have manuscripts from the ninth, 10th century, but he's trying to explain who Christ is to these warriors, right? And the problem with it is with like what they have is different stories about Woden and the way Woden gets knowledge and, you know, the, the ravens come to him, like memory and mind, and they speak to him and, and, and he hangs on the tree and he gets the runes and things like that. Well, how, if you're a Christian, are you going to explain Christ to these these warriors? Well, in the Heliand, what the poet does is show that Christ is Woden, right? <laughs> he, sh- he shows that, say, at the baptism of Christ, the the um, the dove comes down on Christ and the heavens are opened and you hear the voice saying, this is my beloved son. In, in even the- Odin even gets the spear in the side. <laughs> Right. All of that. So some of what we're doing and we're trying to find the the, the re- resonances and the reality behind these stories is what Christianity has been doing f- since the beginning. Right. Like Paul, when he goes to Athens and says, oh, I see you have an altar of the unknown God. Well, I know who it is. Right. Um, that with the, the, the Christian missionaries in the in the early middle in the early Middle Ages, they're saying there is one story. It's about creation. It's about what you were just saying now, the love. Right. That God you know, enters into this story and becomes part of it and, you know, conquers the, 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 the evil by climbing the cross and, and doing battle with, with Satan in that way, that that is the way Christianity has always properly speaking, tried to, to operate, to say there is one truth, there is a reality behind all of this. And we're going to show you the way in which the light has already been there to humanity previously, but now we have the, the fullness of, of that truth. Now that is, that's what Tolkien is trying to do with Lewis and the mythopoeia too, because Lewis and he, they've all been reading all these mythologies and they have this journey, which I think you share, right? You chance share for the truth. How can it be, you know, there's not multiple truths. There's got to be a reality that we participate in. And the, 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 you know, missionary, argument is, well, yes, that's true, because God is available to humanity in our reason, in our passions, in, in our desire for him and the love and the, and the, and the knowledge for the love, you know, love and knowledge. Wisdom. Wisdom, right. It, and, and, and that's impossible not to be participating in. And simply as Christianity says is, and through the incarnation, through Christ, our Lord, we have been given the most full revelation of that truth. But it's, it's, it's there available in, in, in all of those other stories because it's the only one. Does that make sense? I actually completely get what you're laying down. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, to try to do <laughs> so my, everything my... you keep saying is like, yeah, I go, yeah, that's true. Right. <laughs> but, but, but the, the problem is to say, and let in, from my perspective as a Christian, right. Which is also Tolkien's sort of argument is we can't see that fully. We, well, we can't, we, we not, we can't see it. We see it fully through the light that is Christ. How's that? Cool. Yeah. I, uh, have a lot of things I would like to respond to with that and see where it takes us. But okay, so <laughs> Christianity—you you wanted you wanted a deep dive. Here we go. Yeah, I know. I'm loving it. <laughs> so in my in my exploration of origins of Christianity, you know, the word Christian not really a biblical term. I've come across the ancient Greek. Christ. Oh no, it actually is. It's in 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 Antioch in Acts. They were first called Christians. Oh yeah, Antioch yeah. is a interesting yeah. rabbit hole in of itself. The <laughs> there's some 
Lord of the Seculum stuff going on there uh, as well, which is what Christ represents, the king of a, of an age or a, a narrow, Nero, things of that nature. But I want to talk about Cress, the word that means good, essentially, in Greek. It's like he, ro, eta, sigma, C-H-R-E-S. And in this word, you know, if you were to call somebody a Christian, which some of the early church fathers I've come across using that term, then you're calling them good men, calling yourself a good man, Mm -hmm. which I think is a great way to identify oneself and with even the label of Christian, that what we're seeking is goodness and goodness is aligning with nature and nature's pattern and how nature does things. Goodness is a emanation of that pattern in its proper place, right? I mean, sin, you could even look at as like the wrath of God comes through sin. And when we don't follow nature's pattern, we immediately experience consequences to that are detrimental. And that's like very right. simple. It's like functional. God's, God's, it's, 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 it's like, so we can go off way deep into theology. So we, you, you're going to have to keep pulling me back to Tolkien, but I can also do it this other way. Um, that, that sin is, we, it's our own, its own punishment in a sense. Exactly. Right? That's it, how it, I see it's, it. It's, it's, it's God's justice is we get the consequences <laughs> of of what we do. It's his mercy that we don't. Yeah, and it's mercy that we get consequences for doing things out of that, order. That too, true. <laughs> right. <laughs> because yeah. it's a self-correcting principle. I mean, right. and this can lead us into, at some point, I want to have the discussion about dissonance in Tolkien's cosmogony mm-hmm. with the character of Melkor and, you know, the concept of a, uh, fallen demiurge and how that plays in. But specifically though, back to this word crest, I like how, again, with like studying language, you find these little clues throughout it. And one of the clues is the idea of wisdom and the head wisdom being at the head of everything, the top arche, another word meaning head and wisdom, ras being a word for wisdom as well. The early bishops of the church and for quite a long time, had this t- tendency to sign the name with the X or the cross before their name. So like you would, you would sign it as X Brown perhaps, or something like that. Mm. So, you know, we see, so this is a, a, a little trick we can do when we're looking at ancient names or things related to the church that potentially the first letter might be something that you could separate from the following letters. And when you look at Cress. Uh, you know, spelled with the Greek he, which looks like our X. If you drop that X, then you got res or ras as the the word. So right there in this word for goodness, which is, in my opinion, philologically connected to the idea of the Christ, you could also be saying, you know, wisdom. <laughs> and so like, okay, uh, so qu- again, I, I, most of that is it, it's true in a fashion, but I, let me, can I back up and explain some other stuff? Sure. Okay. So Christos is anointed, right? It's, 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 it's a, it's an anointing. And I think what you're encountering in those, I, I'd have to look at the actual fathers that you're talking about, but one of the things that they of course do is try to find patterns in the language that they're working with. And so if they're talking about it being, you know, the, the anointed is good and, and things like that, they'll, they'll be working with these, these resonances and rhymes and analogies and allegories and, and so forth. So that matters, but Christian means anointed. And it's, it's actually even, it's actually even more powerful than just good. It is 
chrismated, right? And and when we are when we are baptized, we're not just you know washed in the water. I was talking about Christ in the Jordan as um, you know baptized by John, and he pours water over him. But in in baptism, and it's very early in 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 the tradition, right? We're also marked with the sign of the cross on our forehead. It's a tau, effectively. It's like and one of my favorite. Um, it goes into other other. Um... Oh yeah, it, it's it, a it, it's a thing. It's beyond. It's bigger than just what we conceive of as Christianity. You know, like Mithraism no, Chris, I'm gonna still hold the line that Christianity is everything. You're just gonna have to like flip your inside and outside there. But hold on, <laughs> I can I can dig it. I think Christianity is like a amalgamation of everything too. In a, it's all in truth. A, okay, so we're we're just gonna. But everything you keep saying is true, and therefore you're still not outside of of Christianity. That that Margaret Barker, if you haven't encountered her work, you're gonna enjoy because she's very much into the way in which the ancient that the oldest Christian traditions are actually participating in the ancient temple. Um, and that's they, true. Yes. And, and she has a wonderful book. Um, well, she has a whole series of books. She just came out with a new book on our lady, which I, I need to read. She has a great commentary on John revelation. Um, temple themes in Christian worship is, is the, is the, the, one of the best ones where she's showing how the earliest Christians are taking on all of these rituals from the, the ancient temple, which is what they see Christ as as rebuilding, right? And and also the incarnation is his entry through the Virgin Mary into the world, and she is his temple, right? So there's a lot of mystical symbolism around around Mary as Ark and Temple and things like that. But with baptism, the anointing, it's with the sacred oil that is used to anoint the priests, right? So when in the letter to the Hebrews it says we are kings and priests and we're anointed. Christians are anointed to be priests. And that 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 anointing oil, it's got a lot of very powerful, both physical and, and symbolic properties. Um, you know, that it's it's got incense and and I've read some things on it. it there's psychotropic elements probably in some of these right, that you're anointed in. It's it's like marked not just with a sign, but with a sort of power of of the 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 um oil and the the incense and such. That's what Christian is, right? We're the little anointed ones. It's a very, very powerful claim because it says we are anointed into Christ's death. At baptism, you're anointed into the death of, of Christ. It's, it, it's, you know, the ancient, tra- ancient traditions have very powerful psychosomatic resonances that, that you're working with. The Christos as good, that's a, that's a sort of playing off of the meaning of the anointing. Uh, yeah, I think both. I think both can be in the mix at the same time. The anointing and the good, you know. But, but the, the Messiah means the anointed one, right? So he's the anointed one. And there's psalms, yeah, that like talk the Hebrew about, Mimshen, Hey, Messiah, right. Moses. A bunch of words come out of that. He's anointed. He's the anointed one. And so Christians are the ones who are little Christs, right? We're we're sort of anointed like Christ. You might even is, consider <laughs> anointed as also being, in a way, like initiated. Because the, yes. those words go together, you know, you've begun. You're not the unbegun anymore. <laughs> but if you think if you think about all of the anointings, like and so, in Re- Revelation is is like the trippiest book ever, right? That the 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 ones who died in the blood of the martyrs, so they're you know washed in the blood, but they are they're there in linen garments. Linen garments are what the high priest wore to go into the I almost wore linen today but it was a little yeah. <laughs> it was a little mildewy needed little to little on there so so all of the, it's it's so interesting that you want to know where Tolkien gets most of his most like astonishing symbolism it's in the scriptures 
right? It's it it's not out there somewhere else that you have to go hunting. It's it's in the Bible that we don't read for its like literal visions as much anymore. And you think about like angels, right? The I'm sure you've seen the video out there where it's like bibli- biblically accurate angels. <laughs> <laughs> really go there. Let's go there. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about the Ina Lindelay, the song of the Aner. They're angels, right? Shall we do that? And and that's that's it why for me it's so delightful teaching Tolkien is everybody's like, oh, you know, Christ- Christianity, most of what people think of Christianity is this incredibly watered down 19th century Protestant terror of anything other than the historical Jesus. You know, I could I could come around to that idea that, uh, <laughs> that the Protestant Reformation was like a uh, a great reset of its time in a bad way. I could definitely oh, yeah. that idea. And that and that's what both told I mean, Lewis never Lewis was Anglican. He never went full Catholic, but they both were readers of Chesterton. Have you read Chesterton? Never. Okay, so read The Everlasting Man. I think you'll enjoy it because he's trying to do what you're doing with the, like, where did the stories come from and how is it the deep myth and the truth, right? Chesterton, has, he's, he converts to Catholicism and he has some, I'll get you to, to, to convert to Catholicism, but we have to do a medieval version, right? It's a medieval version of Catholicism. Um, but Chesterton has all these stories about how the Protestant Reformation is trying to wipe out the reality of the, the mysteries underneath the landscape of Protestant England um, and it's there, right? It's like the holy, the holy places of the medieval mystery have been sanitized in in very curious ways in modernity. Okay, so to maybe keep us on <laughs> the Tolkien, we can go to Ina Lindelay and talk about angels. How about that? <laughs> okay, yeah, take us through that. That sounds fun. I'm into that. I could already tell you and I probably need to talk more than once, but oh, probably. <laughs> I told you I've done a whole class and, you know, series of videos on this and I'm surrounded by books. It's so deep. It's so much fun, right? You can can dive in here very, very deep. Um, so both Tolkien and Lewis are great fans of astronom- uh, astronomy. Well, Lewis particularly, right? Again, I've, I've just, I'm only asking you not to quiz you, but to know where I need to help you. you know, yes, Lewis, yes. You, and I mean, that could be, very likely be the source of scriptures itself, that that's the scripture God gave us, the oh, you know, astrotheology sense. Absolutely. Um, so Lewis, are you a big reader of Lewis? Not a big reader of Lewis, but, you know, he's got some real zingers quote wise that I love to belt out here and there. Oh, okay, which of his quotes do you like? Oh, lately, I just love telling people that all jobs exist to support the most important job, which is <laughs> the woman raising children and taking care of the home. I'm paraphrasing. I'm not direct quoting, but that's I mean, that that hideous strength is the is the great version of that. Right. Where they. they OK, so that hideous strength works in this. So he did the Planet series, right? His sci fi trilogy. Right. I can I can if you give if you give me if you give me rope here, I can I can bring you but all around to all the questions you had. But it's probably too a little too. My friend and I on the Mosaic Arc were joking. It's like I can throw a boomerang and it'll take three hours for it to come back, but I'll catch it. <laughs> I don't think you want me to do that. But boomerang here is Lewis space trilogy, Tolkien time travel. That's how the Earth gets shaped spherical. Oh we- man, and that's on my yeah. <laughs> this is maybe a little known thing for people, but that in Tolkien's mythos, the Earth is flat and then gets reshaped spherical to basically conceal the Western lands from the you know those who don't belong there with the other gods, the undying 
lands. So, I mean, that that could be allegorical to the Americas being lost by everyone except those in the know, which uh, totally too big of a can of worms to open. But there's plenty of reason to believe that the Americas were never lost by whoever had, you know, had basically there's like sea trading routes that have always been in existence and, you know, probably even prior to the Phoenicians who are kind of credited with that. And <laughs> so anyway, okay, I, I do let's want go the back to the rank. planets. Let's, 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 let's get there. Let's do the planets. Okay. So, um, Lewis, Lewis was a great fan of astronomy. And if you, when, when he and Tolkien, you know, they say there, nobody's writing stories, the kind of stories I like. And so we'll, we did a toss up and Lewis said he'd do space travel and, and Tolkien says he did time travel. Lewis really did do space travel, but he did it in all of his books. And that's, what's sort of curious about it. You think of the Narnia series as, you know, in a different world, right? Narnia, it's through the wardrobe and stuff like that. In fact, it's all about the planets, just like his space trilogy is. And there's a magnificent book by Michael Ward called Planet Narnia, where he shows all of this, that all of the symbolism that Lewis uses throughout the Narnia series is of the spheres. It's of the planetary spheres. And they all have characteristics that go with the particular planet that is their like governor, right? So the line in which in the wardrobe is governed by Jupiter, um, Prince Caspian is governed by Mars. The magician's nephew is governed by Venus. Um, the horse and his boy is Mercury. Um, what am I missing? Last battle is Saturn. I'm, I'm missing some, right? And it's only going to be the seven planets and it's going to include the moon, silver chair, the moon and the sun as, uh, oh, and Don Treader is the sun in that old Ptolemaic structure, right? So center earth at the center planets, going out there. And what Lewis was, was um, interested in was this, the, the, the old ancient understanding of the planetary spheres is carrying the music. You see how we'll get to the Annalindale, <laughs> right? That, that when, when in his space trilogy, the main character goes out outside of the influence of the earth in, in out of the silent planet, earth is silent because we can't hear the music of the spheres anymore. When his main character gets up into you know, outside of our atmosphere and into the, the the actual heavens, it's full of music that we can't hear because we're in the fallen world. We're in the the world that that the Satan can, you know is 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 in control of. Outside of that, it's all of the you know marvelous you know cosmos of of the music, and that's what each of the Narnia books sort of participates in. They participate in the 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 sounds of that beautiful music, except for the civil chair, which is sublunary and in, in 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 there does any of this make sense oh yeah yeah the okay. music of the spheres is why i want to talk about the anilindale is that how he says yeah, it cosmography. right okay so th- think about this both lewis and tolkien are working within this old as lewis called it the discarded image right this was the in the old cosmology which was we are here on the earth at the center we're surrounded by these these planets and their rotating spheres surrounded by the fixed stars which are out there on on the edge and their movement creates music the disposers you could call them their move their movement creates music because it's it's uh and it gets into aristotelian and ptolemaic understanding and such but simply music is is this movement through time and in the in the mathematical sciences you go from arithmetic geometry geometry 
music and astronomy, they're all part of it. You, know, you were talking earlier about the mathematical math, right? And the structure and the pattern. Medieval science knows this, right? It's always looking for all of these structures and patterns and it's doing it both in language and in mathematics. And the mathematical structures are the ones that go into both music and astronomy because they're linked, right? Music so is- So arithmetic is number, geometry is space, music right. is time, and astronomy is all of them put together. Precisely. Right. There, that's where we need to get to to understand what's going on in the underlying <laughs> So that when Eru proposes the pattern, what is he going to propose? It's going to be music, right? It's going to be the the musical, the music of the spheres. And so when the Einar start, you know, hear the, the, the pattern he's proposed, it sounds like the music of the spheres, effectively. Although they're not spheres yet. They're not the planet yet because they haven't entered into the creation. But that's why it's the creation is through music because the creation is music. The creation of the, you know, the cosmos is on the the geometrical patterns of the music. And now from this music of the spheres that Tolkien allegorizes, the most interesting, of course, aspect is the conflict introduced that mm -hmm. the most powerful of these uh, secondary generation of gods from Eru is called Melkor. And Melkor has some knowledge of all of the other God's intentions and their movements. It's even, I think, referred to as movements, like in a musical right. sense. <laughs> but also movements. Talking, yeah, it's music. Talking about music. planetary movements. So with that knowledge, he wants to basically figure out the secret of the eternal fire, if I'm not mistaken. Like what it is that and, and this to me is great because <laughs> we I think we see this today with if, satanic forces, if you will, that the Oh yeah. <laughs> the mystery of the life force, you know, the divine spark, that which animates all things to me, like the mystery of the life force might as well be the mystery of God. I mean, they are the same mystery. And so with Melkor's ability to know somewhat of what the other gods are going to do, he then starts to try to impose his own creation outside of the intended music, thus birthing dissonance or evil into the world. And this makes him a type of demiurge character in a, a Gnostic sense. What can you tell us about like the, the insights and wisdom that we can derive from this cosmogony around comprehending the purpose and the place of dissonance or evil in our experience of life? You will keep asking me these questions that take me hours and hours and hours to explain. <laughs> well, you can't just put it in a three word soundbite. What? What? <laughs> Well, then we'll do our best. We're, we're I put it fun. in a story. Um, okay. I, so you see, this is what Tol Tolkien's trying to give you the, the sense of these mysteries in story, right? It, and if I say to you something like, okay, the, the, the God is in the, in the Methopoeia says we don't worship the artifact, right? There is a difference between the creator and the, and the creature, the maker and the artifact. And, and the cosmos is the artifact, which is different from the creator. And this I think is, well, one in in the in the in the early Middle Ages, this was the big leap people had to make. Right? They're they're comfortable. They're perfectly you know familiar with the idea of the you know the the, the deity uh, divinities or powers, right? Which is what in the Anilindale, the Einar become powers. They become the Valar when they enter into the creature into into the music that they've they've sung. What Arda, I what I would right? say, like to add that to the life force concept, is the creator and the creature 
think about how the life leaves the eyes when something perishes, you know, and that body is no longer what it was. This is the, the life force is the mystery, <laughs> you know, in, in the equation of the creation. Well, okay. So this is, this, this is the one leap that, that it, it does take to be sort of within the theological understanding, which is Tolkien's very careful to do this. And there's a lot of, there is some scholarship in thinking about exactly Eru Iluvatar, the Aner, the, the first of his, the, the, um, the offspring of his thoughts. Right. And he is close to a Neoplatonic emanation in that so that, you know, you have, in fact, the, 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 the problem with the Neoplatonic emanation is there's no purpose to it, right? There's no willing of the one's manifestations, emanations, right? In, in, same in, problem in, with Buddhism that I think is pretty much the same thing as the Neoplatonic emanations. Fair. Yes. So in, in our understanding within Christian theology, um, God purposefully does it, right? It's, it's like there's, there's a willing of God's to make the, the creature out of love. Right. And and so they're different. Right. It's not just a, a, an expression of his power. It is his purpose um, that within within the ancient world, they're perfectly aware of the powers that are out there. Right. The powers and principalities that we as you said, satanic or fallen. It's like whether they're what demons are is a like big question in a lot of people's meditations right now. And even in the Middle Ages or like exactly why are the fallen angels have the role that they do a lot of theological discussion um that we clearly do have invisible intelligences around us somehow right whatever they are and i think you you pointed to right now saying somehow we're sensitive to them now that 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 um anger at the life force that envy um that satan clearly has for our life yeah, I mean, it's evident in the whole f fallacious quest for artificial intelligence. Well, that that will just say straight up it's demonic. Um, unfortunately, all tech is kind of demonic, which if we want to go to the, the Enochian stories, right? The, 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 it's the fallen angels who give humanity our weapons and cosmetics, basically. <laughs> Illusions and power is is one of these things that first, you know, for all of humanity, we've recognized to have backfired on us. Right. You make things and they act back on you or you become covetous and possessive of them. This Tolkien looks at this a lot. Right. It's like, what's the ring? Oh, yeah. I mean, Mordor <laughs> is a giant allegory for industrialization. Well, and it's, but it's also things, it's one of the allegories there. It, it's also he's constantly we're getting to Melkor. Right. Constantly worried about the effect of being becoming possessive of our own creations. Um, and, and you sort of step back through, maybe not Melkor yet, but look at Feanor when he makes the Silmarils. So the Silmarils contain the light and you were meditating for there on the fire that Melkor desires, right? The, the Silmarils are gemstones that contain the light of the trees, the blended light of the trees. So they're basically diamonds, but they, they, you know, they, or flashlights, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're gemstones that contain these, these, these lights. And they're so beautiful that everybody ends up desiring them. Melkor too, right? That he, he ends up killing the trees with Ungoliant's help to get those Silmarils. But Feanor falls when he becomes so possessive of his own artifacts. They're beautiful things that he won't let them be sacrificed in order to save the life of the trees. We, we, there's layers in the Silmaril and he can't save them because they've already been stolen. But the problem of our fall, which it is- It leads to the first kinslaying. 
always, right? And that's what you're you're wondering about what what is Tolkien doing with Melkor in the dissonance? The obverse of we are made still in the by the law in which we make still by the law in which we're made is that we can become so attached to the things that we've made that they destroy us. And I think, you know, AI or our ability to talk in this particular format, wherever you are, wherever I am, you know, writing, writing is one of the first demonic interventions. And and therefore it's very interesting that, you know, the logos, the word is, is, you know, enters into our consciousness now because we've got books and we can read them. All of these things, Tolkien is constantly trying to understand the way in which we as makers make things that then become our, I mean, idols is the, is the proper word, become the thing that we become so attached to that we can no longer um, let go of it. The precious. An interesting right. link to just throw on the fire here, so to speak, is that I am, I think that the etymological origin point of Logos may be the Druidic log, which is like the fire in their ceremonies. The, the Druids who would not permit things to be written down in their doctrine mm. that they must be committed to memory, <laughs> you know, very different philosophy than what followed with the, you know, secret of letters being then put into actual documents. Right. But I mean, to think, think AI has the same kind of properties and problems as writing. We can, <laughs> yeah. we can, I mean, we can, AI is we completely can, made out of writing. We can, yes. And we can use it to lie. But the problem is we can use speech to lie too. <laughs> okay. So now I, all of these things go into what, what's up with Melkor, right? It's like, how do you understand why we would turn away from singing the song that the creator proposes? Why would we do and that? And the most powerful of the created is the one that turns away. But we all do it. We're always, we talked, you mentioned, we, you and I were mentioning sin a little bit before, right? What's sin? It's fuck around and find out. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's also it's also it's it's it, so the, the the thing that Tolkien said he tried to do in all of his stories. And he says this in one of his letters is to make visible and physical the effects of sin and misused free will. So make visible and physical the effects of sin and misused free will. And they're the same thing. Right. It's Melkor is made. All of the Aenor are made and they're proposing, he proposes the songs to them and they sing with different voices and they have this, Tolkien is, he's, 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 he's constantly thinking in terms of sort of symphonic harmonies, right? That's like the splintered light. It's all of these different colors that go into the rainbow and it's splintered out and we become, you know, beautiful in all these different ways. I think that's, you mentioned that you wanted to talk maybe about other kinds of creatures that belong in this story. That's why he's big on elves and dwarves and hobbits and it's like the splintering of Iluvatar's creative um joy goes into all of our different modes right and and um likewise um the the Aenor sing in all of these different musical voices and they sing together and such it's like why aren't we all just you know harmonizing in the beauty of the song because that is in fact what heaven is right it's the harmonious singing in praise of the creator why turn away from that is that a question that only we can answer for ourselves or is that the eternal question? <laughs> well, it's kind of, I mean, it's, indeed, right? It's, it's the Melkor question. Is that what, is that the nature of question itself? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. 
Yeah, no, seriously. You know, we're talking about like right. in that divine harmony in eternal sense, there would be no questions, you know, everyone would know what their role was. Everyone would sing their part. So like almost questioning itself is kind of what leads us on this quest of material life and a, a timeline with a beginning and end outside of the circle that is God in eternity. Yeah. <laughs> and so what's interesting about it is that in my classes, we talk through the Melkor problem. I, I play, I, so I always, for the, the music of creation lecture, I go through different samples of music to say, what do you think this, which of these sounds do you like the music of creation? And there's, there's sort of different problems metaphorically of, well, is it simply, um, orchestral, right? I start with some Beethoven, right? Um, I think I do start with Beethoven. Is it voices only? So it's like plain chant. Is it, um, uh, what do I work through? It's plain chant with the, the, the words that go with the incarnation, some Hildegard and things like that. Um, and then I'd say, okay, so what does, oh, I know there's another in there that's like romantic tone poems that have music that sounds like pictures. So Smet, Smetana's um, Mavlast, the music of the river kind of thing. Cause like the Ulma with his river sounds, you know, it's like, can you hear the music of, of creation in the creatures as they play along in the river or something? And everybody goes, Oh yeah. Okay. Think of, of Bacchus and Bach words that mean river. Nice. <laughs> in German. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so we listened to all that and everybody goes, Oh, that's very nice. And I go, okay. So what does Melkor sound like? Right. And, and then I always, um, I have a, one of Blind Guardian's songs. Do you know their music? I don't, but I remember that Melkor's... It's metal. <laughs> I remember Melkor's music had to do with, like, being very repetitious. Blaring uh, and trumpets and, you know, it's... it's Yeah, and it just makes yeah. me think of the way that the the tyrannical dictator operates in convincing the lie to the to people is through repetition. I mean, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, dictator even means in a philological sense to repeat oneself over and over again. And that's how lies gain ground and get established is through this repetition aspect. So I, I imagine Melkor's music is something that is like very repetitious and uh, doesn't, you know, change much. It's just like, I don't know. <laughs> Metal though. Could be, could be. The students always love it. <laughs> they're all like oh yeah we've you know the beethoven that's nice and my boss that's nice you know okay fine plain chant gloria hildegard okay cool and then i play blind guardian they're like oh yeah that's cool right and one of the problems that tolkien points to is that melkor's music was most like the 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 sorrowful tune that comes in the third theme so humanity is drawn to it we are drawn to that destructive long you know power so, melkor is a meditation on why we why we sin why we fall away from that harmony and eros and thanos thanatos yeah know, yeah death instinct yeah so i don't do i don't tend to go with 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 those mythologies but yes <laughs> um in, in in it's like we we are somehow and and what's interesting in tolkien is trying to figure this out why are we fallen it's the huge mystery. It's like, why aren't we simply in heaven always? That's the, yeah, that's the eternal question and good one to leave us pondering, you know, for the 
<laughs> as we wrap up the the first hour, because it's <laughs> I don't think that uh, we'll maybe be solving the eternal question anytime soon. But in terms of the narrative element of creation and subcreation, being that we are existing in a creation, the aspect of conflict and dissonance is integral to a good story. And <laughs> to me, like. It's a simple answer, but that answer works for me that we have the dissonance, we have the the fall or the perception of separation because you can never truly be separate from that which is all. <laughs> it doesn't you Well, know. that's true too. I mean, God loves us so much. He's not going to let us go. It's it's our choice to to go away. But the the um what Tolkien says, he says in one of his letters there can be no human story without a fall. It's just like it's what we are. And it's the misused free will that's the challenge, right? We really can't, we can choose. Our choices matter eternally. And that's another, so, uh, you know, hit the other great theme in, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, on, on the opposite of the ring is, of course, it dominates wills, is the character's capacity to choose. So, the, and, and you say, we don't have stories unless we have those choices. Cho- our, our, we recognize the power of our ability to make choices. You could even look at the way that sin affects us in our health and our, our vitality that to me, you know, I'm somebody that we haven't brought this up, but I'm actually someone that works with the energy body with people to help them find their beliefs and expectations about life that are limiting their own expression of the life force mm. erroneously, if you will, and reconnect them to a more complete sense of their wholeness and their, you know, their power and their divine spark. And it basically, I don't know what I was about to say. Dang, I lost it. But what was I on about? I, I've, 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 I've confuddled you because I've tried to restructure your thinking here. <laughs> Make you medieval with me. <laughs> well, let's just hold that thought here. And, you know, a second hour, I do want to talk more of the hints at a hidden history that Tolkien might be sure. giving us through his works. I'm super into that idea and, you know, picking up where we left off on possibly some of the other concepts in the first hour, but definitely that and the humanoids, <laughs> other forms of humanoids, all very cool. This has been an excellent and quite exciting first hour. So thank you for being here. Please let people know where they can once again, find your work and connect with you. I know you've got a telegram channel. Uh, so. Lay it on us, Rachel. Okay. So the, the 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 parent site for everything is dragoncommonroom.com. And I will beg you to go visit it right now because we're running a Kickstarter for a story that we're writing called Draco Alchemicus. You're going to have to have me back on to talk about all the alchemical stuff there. Amen. Um, yeah, and 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 the, the the last full day of the Kickstarter is Monday, so this is this is nicely timed for you know to get your excitement. And we have, if I might do my little promotion, some really great rewards for backers, including I will show them these 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 decks of playing cards, right? Which will never be for sale. They're only specially designed for our Kickstarter with the alchemical dragon on one side. You see, and the brazen serpent on the other, and and your your problem is understanding which of these is our is the dragon that we're talking about in our story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we Call like mythology. <laughs> oh man, and that just connects right to what we were talking about and the 
instinct to, oh, I remember what I was going to say. Yeah, that sin is more harmful on us when it's willful ignorance than when it is an anescient mistake. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's a fascinating part of all this, too. You know, you see people that don't know better doing all kinds of foolish things with their body, especially in youth. Right. And that folly doesn't quite fall on them as it would once, you know, and you do it anyway. I'm going to hold the thought that I have there because I think it's a good, yeah, no, this is a good place to, to, to continue, to be continued. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Okay. We'll see everybody on the second hour and thanks for being here with us on the free first hour. Rachel, it's been a lot of fun. Looking forward to continuing. Thank you, Chance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast today. And with the topic of Tolkien, I don't think I could ever get enough. I already want to continue with Rachel into more conversing on the subject. Hopefully this was enjoyable for the regular normal level fan of Tolkien's stuff. Cause I know that we didn't really talk a lot about the plot elements or analyzing them of the Lord of the Rings proper. We were kind of all over the place. Definitely a lot of theology that comes with the territory with somebody like her. There's plenty of things that I want to pick up where we left off on though, especially like, you know, I had this entire intention to get into talking about Galadriel, the character who is the old, one of the oldest beings in middle earth. If you remember, uh, is it Kate Blanchett? Is that the name of the actress? I don't know, but she like almost takes the ring from Frodo and she's like, you would have a queen and her hair is all flying back and everything goes dark. There is such a cool weave probably to get into regarding Galadriel as a potential Lilith allegory, mother of monsters, who is basically good, but also terrible, (laughs) terrible as in like powerful, (laughs) terrifying. Anyway, very, very fun time. I would totally do another chat with her. Maybe bring her to a vibrant where the conversation can get a little more freewheeling and we can talk more plot points, Lord of the Rings and interested in her comic book series that she mentioned as well. Uh, Draco Alchemist. So I will make sure and put the links in the show notes for her work on unauthorized TV, the forge of Tolkien, her dragoncommonroom.com and her blog fencing bear at prayer.blogspot.com. And I had a fun synchronicity with her regarding Owen Benjamin, his stream just yesterday. This happens a lot with Owen, but when I watch a stream, sometimes he'll bring up something that I was just thinking about. In the case of Rachel, what happened was someone wrote him a letter and he was reading it on the stream and they were one of her students at one point. So they mentioned her and he's like, oh yeah, I love fencing bear. Cool. (laughs) And then the very next day, here I am talking to fencing bear. Never before had I heard him mention her. So that was cool. Happened again last week where I was listening to Owen and he talked about his brother. Um, And then, you know, maybe a week later, I asked Jennifer, I was like, have you ever seen him bring up his brother on the stream? And the next day he plays a clip with his brother in it, which I'd never seen him do before. So funny stuff like that. I just like the little winks that the synchronicity winks sync winks maybe you could call it they give me a feeling of being on the right path and they happen all the time most of them are kind of too personal or may seem too small to be worth sharing but keep note of those guys they're like 
markers on your path to help you feel confident that you're on the right one. And if you feel out of synchronicity, maybe work with me for some tuning because that can really help. The synchronicities are always there, but we just got to clear our filters so that we can perceive them more clearly. Now, in the topic of Tolkien, I think we could do a lot more to discuss the elements of the ancient mystery tradition that are extant in his work as well as, and you know, maybe we need to talk to somebody else. Not that I wouldn't talk to Rachel again. I'm sure we will, but maybe we need to talk to somebody else. So if you know other Tolkien experts, I would love that. If you go back into the archives pretty far back, there are some shows with Dr. Becca Tarnas, T-A-R-N-A-S, Becca. She is a also academic who has done a lot of good work on the Jungian elements of Tolkien. And we had a great talk, couple of talks with her uh, more about fairy stories in general. And I hope you guys enjoy that. If you want more Tolkien content that I was a part of, it's even, it's hard for me to recommend things from two or three years ago, four years ago, because I'm so different now that I'm like, don't listen to that guy. But those were good chats. I definitely could recommend those. I actually wanted to continue talking with her, but disagreements over the nature of cooties and the uh, importance of certain things that were pushed around cooties seem to have made us no longer able to align. And, you know, maybe that'll change in the future, but I'm kind of over it. (laughs) Hopefully that doesn't take you out of being interested in those old shows, though, because they're really good. They are quite entertaining for the Tolkien file. So... You know, things that were on my mind in this chat that we couldn't quite get to would be getting further into the allegory of the Atlanteans or the Phoenicians, in particular, how they are portrayed as in the extended mythos, legendarium, if you will, of Tolkien as the Numenorians, this island civilization that were rewarded for, rewarded by, from the gods for their role in helping take down Melkor, the evil, deranged, demiurge god during the first age. And an island is raised in the middle of the Western seas for them to have their seat of their empire. And then that is, <laughs> then that is uh, lost as they fall into kind of like satanic human sacrificing obsessions uh, for chasing immortality. And it's so funny how our perceptions can turn a gift into a curse and vice versa (laughs) because these Numenorians, Atlanteans, Phoenicians, and this is kind of in the, the lore around the Atlanteans too. And why it sank according to maybe the more mystic side Steiner esque side that their own pursuit, their own vain pursuit of immortality is what destroys them in the end. And yet the immortal beings look at the ability to die, the capacity to, to die and pass away that man has as something to be jealous of as a gift. So, you know, never be afraid of the end of one story and the beginning of another, because that's really, in my opinion, all the transition probably is. You exist. You will always exist. It's not like you're going to cease to exist. And it's this clinging that comes from a fear of not existing, which is an erroneous fear of something impossible. That is what leads to this concept of the, you know, hungry ghost, which is what demons are in my study, in my opinion. 
I also really would love to talk more about the arc mythos, possibly with Rachel, because that's a never ending gravy outlet. And in fact, the arc, it comes from a similar word that I believe the Norse people used for the earth itself, which is Arga. In the Greek, you have Argos or things along that line relating to the boat. So the earth is like the macrocosm arc that all things are preserved in the earth. And even potentially like things that we consider extinct are just waiting in the soil to be birthed again when the conditions are correct. And so with Arga being a word or Eartha being words for the arc and the physical realm that we're on, Tolkien called the earth Arda, Arda like with a D. So I think he was hip to exactly what I'm talking about. I'm sure he was. <laughs> if there was one person who's deceased that I could, if I could just make a wish and have them as an interview, it would be J.R.R. Tolkien. And I also really appreciated Rachel in this conversation for, you know, something that maybe going into it, I had a little hesitancy about that she's ardently Catholic, right? But as much as I've done a lot of work exposing the fraud of the priesthoods, and in particular how, you know, this is my position that the Vatican has done a lot more harm than good overall. There is still something really cool about her perspective and her relationship to that tradition. And that I feel that she does a a pretty good job with the universal aspect of what Catholic is probably meant to represent and that truth is evident in all places at all times. That's the nature of truth. It must be self-evident. And so that's a valid path too. You know, there's many people who Catholicism was their initiation to the sacred. I believe those exact words came from a recent guest, John McHugh, who was a awesome astrotheology teacher who I ought to hit up and have back on soon. That's a good idea. So if you're interested in the second hour of this chat and you only heard the first hour, part two, we take a pretty circuitous route along many subjects. (laughs) The boomerang goes far, but it comes back. And we talked about the Axis Mundi or the World Mountain, how that shows up in Tolkien's work and like just the idea of it. And then Irondil, Ireland and Anglo-Saxon literature. Arendelle being a a Venus allegory, simply put, we'll save it for your discovery if you sign up to Interverse Plus and get the second hour. Then we had a talk about what philology is, how we can know things through the study of language and the descent of various aspects of language. And (laughs) we straight up do not see philology quite the same way, but yet we do. And this was, you know, this is what I liked about talking to Rachel is that we are at, we are at odds in some of our perspectives and or conclusions, you could say, yet the respect and the fun of this conversation was there the whole time. There was no debate about it. There was constantly a returning to like, oh, well, here's how what you're saying is like what I think, you know, and we kept finding those middle grounds where all of the value is really at. I really appreciate that. I really, really appreciate that. To be able to hold contradictory conclusions, but still have 
a helpful conversation is it's enlightening. It's really wonderful. So, you know, and me saying that isn't to try to like sway you away from maybe agreeing with her take on philology or on Catholicism. You do you. It's all good. (laughs) Uh, I think she's great. And then uh, we also continued on to talk about Tolkien's unfinished sequel to Lord of the Rings, the new shadow. We discussed why civilizations fall back to that question of evil and the purpose of dissonance. Then we discussed the philosophy or the doctrine of the Trinity. I know that's a probably a tired topic for a lot of people out there, (laughs) but I thought it was a good, I thought it was good. There was no like beating you over the head with any like dogma whatsoever. It was just a couple of deep thinkers sharing what they have learned about a particular subject and what they think reflects in nature about that. Uh, And then we finished up discussing the other types of humanoids in Tolkien and how that relates to cryptids and aliens and fairies and elves and angels and demons and oh my, all of that and more. So if you want to hear the second hour of this chat, please go check out rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com slash interverse or patreon.com slash interverse. Either one of those places you can support me and get the second hour of the talk. Or if you just want to go whole hog, you probably should just get on unauthorized.tv and tune into The Forge of Tolkien, her series there, which I would love to do, but I've had problems with unauthorized uh, accepting my card. I need to resolve that, but probably shouldn't even say that. I don't want to turn people off to trying. It is a great platform. And so I'm going to also offer up right now that there's still some... There's still some slots available looking at my calendar for July. Actually, a pretty good amount. Like going into the third, fourth week of July, there's definitely still some openings to do a tuning with me soon, sooner than later. Uh, There's always probably going to be a a five-ish, five or six week, four or five, six week uh, delay on when you can book because I, I just fill up. But you know, let that be a testament of that it's good. <laughs> it's useful. And if you want to help yourself achieve a more comprehensive, full body, hell yeah, flow state, then tuning is a great way to do it. Please hit me up at chance at interversepodcast.com. Learn more about the tuning process, interversepodcast.com slash sound dash healing. There's all that and more. So If you look in the show notes, the description of any episode, including this one, lots of ways you can support me and my work through affiliates like Clive DeCarl, who's got excellent supplements or picking up audiobooks that I've narrated, collaborating with Dylan Sicosio in the spirit world, the series. Also, Aqua Cure is on there, a hydrogen gas generating device that I've been inhaling like mad. Seems to allow me to function with a lot less sleep, which is cool. And uh, I think that's it. There's probably other affiliate links on there. Oh, Tippecanoe Herbs. Duh. Get you some Tippecanoe Herbs, y'all. Interverse is the coupon code for 10% off. I particularly enjoy the Kapow and also their essential oil roll-on sticks. Those are really good. But Kyle, Kyle and Serena over at Tippecanoe, they got teas. They got tinctures and everything in between. So check them out, support a wonderful family. And I'm going to play us out with a track by my buddy, 
Oliver, aka Volo. If you heard the vibrant intro music, which hopefully you have, since I play it weekly, <laughs> every week that we do a show. Hey, I just got a oh, I just got a notification email that my re- most recent purchase from Typical New Herbs has arrived. So I'm gonna go bust that open. Very cool. So anyway, I'm gonna play us out with a, a brand new tune from Volo. This is not yet released. I think it's going to premiere soon or in a few days, but this will be the first public place you can hear it, which is cool. He offered me that honor and I very much appreciate it. So the track is called Northern Gate. He claims it to be a genre genre bending journey. <laughs> it's got guitar and percu- percussion too. It's a collab track. Pretty cool. Going to enjoy listening to this in the premiere again. It's a good one volovibes.com if you like his music support a great dude fellow listener of the show and awesome musician and with that i guess i'll wrap it up having too much fun to hit stop but gotta finish somewhere looking forward to putting this one out and yeah let me know if you know some good tolkien scholars that are not you know too woke to function And uh, we'll do more Tolkien talks if you like it. Lord of the Rings is a never-ending gravy flow. So you guys have a great time wherever you're at. Remember to be good because it's good to be good for good's sake. Much love. Bye-bye. <laughs>